0: A little bit of a transition today, and um, we have, we're have we going to take a break from 1 Corinthians until I'll, the first of the year, and today is going to be a basically a biblical theology uh, that I wanted to go through this morning, and there's not actually a main text, but if you want to turn to a text, you can turn to Genesis chapter 2, Genesis chapter 2. And we'll be running through all sorts of scriptures. So if you have your Bibles, uh, you'll need them because not every scripture I reference today is going to be on the screen because some of them are kind of long. Let's begin with a word of prayer. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for the word of God. It is true. It is definitive and it is sure, and so therefore we can trust it. I pray that as we look at kind of a sobering topic this morning, Lord, that you will help us to really grasp spiritual reality, but at the same time rejoice in our place in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. You, you probably noticed that I didn't preach a message about the election uh, I didn't pass out voting guides, any of that sort of stuff. And I, I did have some people say, um, hey, you, know, you ought to talk about the election. And um, I uh, just basically kindly said, um, maybe I shouldn't um, in a way. And you might ask why I, I didn't talk about these current events. And there are there are two big reasons. First of all, my commission is to preach and teach about the kingdom of God. That's what I'm commissioned to do by God, first of all, and this church, second of all. Secondly, um, and I'll quote one of my favorite preachers. He said this recently, because what happens in America politically has absolutely nothing to do with the kingdom of God. I will preach the kingdom of God. Right? Right? Whether America is Republican or Democrat, whether it becomes socialist or communist, and even if it becomes a dictatorship, it will not affect anything concerning the kingdom of God. Do you remember what Jesus told Pilate when he was on trial? He looked at Pilate and he said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would have been fighting. And so we don't fight a flesh and blood battle. We are actually in a spiritual war. And it's a, it's a much greater war than, than the, 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 well, actually, it's the war that underlies the, the social and economic and all that other stuff that's going on in a country right now. That being said, what I would like to do today is, is just talk about or preach today about what is actually going on and answer a few questions. The first one would be, how did we get here? How did we get to the point that we have so much unrest and upheaval in our country? And the simple answer is that we got there because of the exceeding sinfulness of sin. There's a book entitled The Exceeding Sinfulness of Sin written a long time ago. It's, it's tremendous. I will say this. Sin is exceedingly sinful, and God hates sin. God is absolute purity, holiness, righteousness, and truth. And sin is the exact opposite of all that. And if that is God's character, then sin is completely opposite God's character. Sin corrupts. Sin corrupts broadly. Sin corrupts completely. It's in every fabric of every human being in every society in the whole world and all throughout history. All men are sinners, right? And because we are sinners, God's justice demands that we render every, that he render to every person what is due to him. He's a just God. He's a fair God. And so every sin ever committed by every person will be judged fairly, completely, and eternally. That's pretty serious stuff, isn't it? Before Adam and Eve sinned, God even warned them about that. Look at Genesis chapter number two and verse number 16. He warned them, He said this, he said, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Satan comes in the form of a servant and immediately questions God's word. Did God actually say that? You won't surely die, will you? Look at how good this fruit is and just just started getting them to question God. And of course, we know they did eat and immediately Adam and Eve died spiritually and that is the status of every human being that's ever born. Those cute little babies in the cribs that, or the ones that you hold in your arms, they are spiritually dead. That's, that's humanity. Judgment because of sin is inescapable. Every person will be held accountable for their sin, their sin, and no one else's. I was in a kind of a smarty pants uh, text battle yesterday with one of our church members just joking around, and they said something about me causing them to stumble, and I'll be judged for their sin. I said, no. I said, this is what uh, uh, Ezekiel says. And so I quoted Ezekiel 18.20. Look at what it says. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father for the iniquity of the son. Every soul shall, the sins shall die. We are accountable to God for our sin and no one else's. We can't do the whole Flip Wilson thing and stand before God and say, the devil made me do it, right? Okay, man is so given over to sin That we have become slaves to sin. Do you not know that who, that if you present your body, anybody who, let me just start over. Do you not know that who, if you present your body, you just want to read it, okay? (laughs) Let me try this one more time. And we're recording this service, so this is awesome. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, your slaves are the one to whom you obey? Either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. And of course, as Christians, we know we can't obey perfectly. We're relying upon the perfect obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ to get us to heaven. Sin is personal. Look at this. But those who do evil, lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. The evil person thinks they're being crafty, thinks they're being sly. They cheat, they steal, they lie, they do whatever they can to think that they're getting ahead. And God says they're only setting an ambush for their own lives. Another one in Proverbs 3.33, the Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked. Their whole house is being cursed because somebody is wicked. Another one in Proverbs uh, 8.36, all who hate me love death. Think about the picture that's being painted here about sin and sinners. Another one, Proverbs 19.5, an evil person will not go unpunished. Evil people are not getting away with their evil right now. We get so frustrated because the wheels of justice turn so slowly or, or they're so skewed in one person or another's favor. I want to remind you why Almighty God says an evil person, all evil people, will not go unpunished. Um, Proverbs 14, 11, the house of the wicked will be destroyed. I mean, these are some harsh words. They are firm words. Well, last one in Proverbs, Proverbs six fourteen, The man with a perverted heart devises evil continually, sowing discord. Therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly in a moment. He will be broken beyond Healing just this is just a short little survey of the book of proverbs everything god has to say about evil and there's so much more in there do you do you get the picture it god is watching God is keeping accounts. God's will is perfect. And and he's keeping these accounts and he knows everything. Nothing is escaping him. Look at Numbers 32 and verse number 23. It says this But if you will not do so, behold, you have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. God is not blind. What do these verses tell us? I mean, if we could sum up all of these verses together, what are they telling us? They're giving us a principle from the New Testament in Galatians chapter number six, that says this, do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. The principle of sowing and reaping. And we're talking, obviously we're talking about eternal sowing and reaping. Everybody in the world today, get this, everybody in the world today is either sowing righteousness and reaping eternal life, or they are sowing sin and are reaping eternal destruction. That is sobering to think, isn't it? Very sobering thought. You say, well, Jared, yeah, this is all well and good, but this is speaking of the eternal state. And I do agree with that. I do agree it's talking about the eternal state. But the Bible also talks about temporal consequences. And he, the Bible talks about societal changes and when societies give themselves over to sin. And so I want you to turn to Romans 1 with me. Turn to Romans 1 and we'll, we'll see this principle in Romans number, uh, chapter number 1. I want you to look at verse number 18, and notice what God says, what, the, what Paul says. Um, he says this, he said, for the wrath of God, and I want you to notice these words, is revealed. doesn't say will be, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Notice, Paul doesn't say the, the wrath of God will be revealed. We know that, don't we? but it is revealed right now. Yes, there are eternal wrath and punishment that man will suffer and sin has consequences, but it's not like there's some neutral cosmic law that produces these consequences. These consequences are the direct expression of the wrath of God. And so we need to ask this question then, how does man suppress that truth? That's the first thing that we need to ask as we work our way through Romans 1. How does man suppress the truth of God? Well, look at verse number 14. Four, there's your connector. There's, there's your thought connector, right? Four, what can be known about God is plain to them. God, Because God has shown it to them. In other words, mankind can plainly see that there is a God and that he is just. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in things that have been made. All mankind, no matter what they tell you, can clearly perceive that there is an eternally infinite God, eternally powerful and infinite God. So look at what Paul says. Because of that, So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they become futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. They became fools, exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images uh, resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. The, The issue is not that God cannot be known, the issue is a moral issue. You see? It's morally. They refuse to acknowledge God. It's completely moral. And so God is clearly perceived in His creation, but man has rejected that and He worships what He wants to worship. Have you ever seen a, a, a time when man's eyes are so darkened as they are today? Uh, you know, I'm into astronomy, I get sky and telescope. Every single issue I get, they find something that doesn't match their evolutionary thinking. Well, this star, this galaxy should be doing this. These stars should be doing that. We need to rethink our model. Yeah, you need to rethink it and just trash it all together and say, there's a God that created it all. But they're not going to do that. They refuse to acknowledge God. And so the Bible says, in the end times, man will be ever learning— and never able to come to the knowledge of truth. It's not because mankind's dumb. It's because mankind morally refuses to acknowledge God Almighty. Now look at what Paul says, okay? If this is why his wrath comes out, what is the form of his wrath? Well, let's look at the next verse, verse number 24. How is God's wrath meted out? Simply, he gives them over to their desires. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Plain and simple, they want sex and perversion. He gives them sex and perversion. God gives them over to sex. Do you know any nations nearby that are like that? You know, maybe one that starts with a U and ends with an A and has an S in the middle. Our society has completely given itself over to sex in every way imaginable. The sexual revolution has not stopped. Just a couple weeks ago, I talked about Martina Navratilova, who is widely celebrated. Well, that is passe. We're on to new sexual rights now, and she doesn't match up, and so she gets thrown away. And our nation, porn is, a, is an epidemic, worse than COVID, worse than any results of any dictatorial uh, um, person in the world. It's ruining families. Sex is ruining families. And uh, the, the, if you get in the way of anybody's idea of what their perfect sex life should be, you must be destroyed. And that is our nation. But let's keep reading. Verse 25. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Now, what creatures are we worshiping today? The, The person in the mirror, right? Yes, yeah. Let's keep reading. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves a due penalty for their error. What are we talking about here? We're talking about homosexuality. And let me tell you something that it is very clear that when the government takes an official stance for homosexuality, like it has, and churches are being uh, prosecuted, and, and they are going after churches because of homosexuality, that tells you that we're well along the way of judgment in our country, doesn't it? What does divine judgment look like? Well, initially, it's just God giving you over to lusts multiplying the perversities, multiplying the iniquities as they're listed at the end of the chapter, and the corruption accumulates and accumulates, and the weight, the sheer weight of that cor- corruption is incomprehensible, particularly when God is too holy to look at any corruption. It is a, it isn't an offense to God, and it's massive and far beyond our comprehension how offensive All of this is to our God. And it is that point, when it gets to that point, that God brings a nation down. And so we see another truth in Scripture I want to go through. And you know what that is? God causes nations to rise and fall. He's very clear about that. Look at um, Isaiah 40. No, don't turn there. I'll just, I'll throw it up on the screen for you. But I want to say this before we look at this verse. Did you know God is not loyal to any one nation? Even Israel. He's not even loyal necessarily to Israel in a sense. And I don't have time to explain that. Please don't email me and say that God, Israel's not God's covenant people. I understand all that. What I'm saying, you'll see what I'm saying as I, as I go through this. So don't miss what I'm saying by what I said. Does that make any sense? So. God brings nations up and down according to his purpose and his pleasure. Isaiah 40, verse number 22. That's why God thinks of every single nation in the world, every single nation that's ever existed. The mighty Roman Empire, the mighty uh, the mighty advances that Alexander the Great made in Greece, the Babylonian Empire, the British Empire, and you could go on and on and on. He views them as grasshoppers. He views them as grass, and they hardly take root. When he says, "Okay, I'm done," and they're gone. While human authorities make their plans and they are accountable for those decisions and and actions, God remains ultimately in control. Psalm 33, verses 10 and 12. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people's. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. We can plan. We can can strategize. Nations can do all that we want. We can build our military. We can spend trillions of dollars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And God frustrates those plans if he wants to, right? Because he has counsels that will stand forever and ever. Consider this. He decides who's going to be the, the king. The Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets it over the lowliest of men. And it doesn't matter who has the greatest political advantage. It doesn't matter who is the most attractive candidate. When God decides that candidate is going to sit in the White House or on the throne, it happens. There's a certain amount of comfort in that, isn't there? When you combine the fact that God makes nations rise and fall with the principle of sowing and reaping, you have another truth that we need to introduce. I've already alluded to it, and that is this. When a nation gives itself over to sin, God destroys it. Because God hates sin, and it will not go unpunished. It's clear that we are seeing the beginnings While I'm talking, if you'll turn to Isaiah chapter 10, we'll get there in just a minute. It is clear that we see the beginnings of God's judgment on our nations. And and there is a moral principle. There are moral principles built into our world since creation, and they apply to all nations, they apply to all nationalities. And God may raise up nations and empires to accomplish his purpose. But when, and this is important, when in their arrogance and violence, and depravity, when those things reach an intolerable level, God acts in judgment and they either collapse, they sink into global insignificance, or they depart the world stage of history altogether. And the the history is replete with empires that you can't find anything about right now. The Hittites, you know the Hittites that are in the Bible? Liberal scholars said there were no Hittites because we had no record of them until in the last hundred years. We finally found evidence of Hittites. For example, God used Assyria at, literally as a stick to punish Judah and then he judged Assyria. And this is what Isaiah 10 says. Look at um, verse number, oh, uh, let's look at verse number five, okay? Woe to Assyria, The stick, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation, and that godless nation is actually Judah or Israel, okay? Judah, I send him. So he's sending Assyria against Israel. And against the people of my wrath, I command him to take the spoil and seize the plunder and tread them down like the mire of the streets, But he does not so intend, and his heart does not think so, but it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. Now, what God is saying here is, look, I'm sending Assyria, I'm I'm commanding them to go against Judah and punish Judah, but in their mind, they don't even acknowledge me. They're just doing what they naturally do, you see? But I'm punishing Israel or Judah with a nation that's far worse than you are. Now that sounds really unfair, doesn't it? Until you get to verse number 12 and look what he says. And when the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion in Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look of his eyes. In other words, God's going to take Assyria and he's going to whip Israel with it like a rod. And when he's done, he's going to smash Assyria because that's the only right thing to do. What kind of a God do we serve? He hates sin that much, and he doesn't have any special place for any nation on earth. T- turn to Jeremiah 19. Jeremiah 19. Jeremiah, what is he? The weeping prophet, right? Notice what he says in, Jer- in Jeremiah 19 in verse number 3. "'You shall say, hear the word of the Lord, O kings of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem.'" Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel Behold, I am bringing such a disaster on this place that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. Because the people have forgotten or forsaken me and have profaned this place by making offerings in it to other gods, whom neither they nor their fathers nor the kings of Judah have known. And because they have filled this place, with the blood of innocence, and have built the high places of Baal to burn their sons in the fires, burnt offerings to Baal, which I command or decree, or did not come into my mind. Stop right there and just think about something. Are we killing our children in massive amounts in this country, on the altar of sexual freedom, on the on the to the idol of personal sexual autonomy? We have aborted millions and millions of babies, and God is taking note. Now let's continue reading what he says. Therefore, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when this place shall no longer be called Topheth, or the valley of the Son of Hinoam, but the valley of slaughter. And in this place, I will make void the plans of Judah and Jerusalem and will cause their people to fall by the sword before their enemies. And by the hand of the beasts of the earth, I will make the city a horror, a thing to be hissed at. And everyone who passes by it will be horrified and will hiss because of all its wounds. And I will make them eat. Now this is gross. I will make them I will make them eat the flesh of their sons and daughters. Why are they doing that? Because they're starving for famine. And everyone shall eat the flesh of his neighbor in the siege and the distress with which their enemies and those who seek their life shall afflict them. Let me ask you a question. Is God serious about the consequences of sowing sin? He's, pardon the pun, Dead serious about it. He hates sin. Let's look at, turn to Isaiah chapter 34. Isaiah 34. We'll begin reading verse number one. Draw near, O nations, to hear and give attention, O peoples. Let the earth and all that fills it the world, and all that comes from it. Let me stop right here. Let me set this up. Now the scope has gone from Judah and Israel to all the nations. This is Old Testament. All the evil, wicked nations. Continue reading. For the Lord is enraged against all the nations and furious against all their hosts. He has devoted them to destruction and given them over for slaughter. Now, He goes out to the future when this is accomplished. This is future now. Their slain shall be cast out, and the stench of the corpses shall rise. The mountains shall flow with their blood, and all the hosts of heaven shall rot away. And the skies roll up like a scroll, and all their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. For my sword—listen to this graphic language— "'My sword has drunk its fill in the heavens, "'and behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom.'" And this is an illustration now. Now he switches to Edom. Look at what he says. "'Upon the people I have devoted to destruction.'" He's been saying this for a very long time to Edom. I'm going to destroy you because of your sin. Let's keep reading. It gets very graphic. "'The Lord has a sword, and it is sated with blood. "'It is gorged with fat.'" the blood of lambs and goats, the fat of kidneys of rams, for the Lord has a sacrifice in Bazar. Bazar is a city in Edom, a great slaughter in the land of Edom. Wild oxen shall fall with them and young steers and mighty bulls and their land. By the way, young steers and mighty bulls and all that, that's probably imagery of the rulers, in case you're wondering. This is talking about people, most likely, and not animals. Okay, um, their land shall drink its fill of, of blood, and their soil shall be gorged with fat. For the day of the Lord, or the day for the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. And the streams of Edom shall be turned into pitch, and her soil into sulphur. And her land shall become burning pitch, night and day. It shall not be quenched. What's that a picture of? Hell, isn't it? Day and night it shall not be quenched. Its smoke shall go up forever. From generation to generation it shall lie waste. None shall pass through it forever and ever. God is using the language of hell to show that any nation that defies God will be punished. Now you think in our world today, how many nations are defying God by their laws by the way their rulers rule, by the way their people live. And we, we sit here in America and we long for the days of seeing God bless America when our nation's official position is against God in so many different areas. Now let's turn to another verse. Let's go to the New Testament and we want to go to the very end. So let's take our Bibles and turn to uh, Revelation chapter number 20. What is the end of all sinners? We call that the day of the Lord. And we find that in Revelation 20. You want to know what the day of the Lord is? Here's a description. Verse number 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. And from his presence, the earth and the sky fled away and no Place was found for them. I don't have time to unpack this, but I just want to say, the earth and the sky—that's most likely talking about people in who love this temporal life who are sinners. Okay, I'm not going to explain all the imagery here. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were open. Then another book was open, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. There's that final justice. And the sea gave up its dead who were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. The whole world will be judged according to their deeds. And the, the, every sin that they ever sowed will be reaped in corruption. And we're seeing it right here in the day of the Lord. Then death and Hades... We're thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was now found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Eternal punishment is the judgment to come. Now, I know I just painted a horrific picture, but this is biblical and we need to hear it. But I want you to contrast this for just a minute. You ready? All the preoccupation with social issues the interest in social justice financial equity equity redistribution oppression all the victims socialism identity fixation and the election all of those things are completely meaningless in the in the view of what is about to come isn't it As Christians, we have to know this because we know the future. The Lord has shown it to us. It's depressing, isn't it? It's completely depressing. Why on earth would a sane person sink his hopes so deeply in any of this? If I can just get if I can just quit being a victim. If I can just get social justice. If I just get financial retribution, if I can just get this taken care of and get that taken care of, and all these temporal things, my life will be great. It will not be great. It will never be great because God said so, because there is a sowing and reaping of sin. Why would anybody sink their hopes so deeply in this? And here is where we're going to make a dramatic turn. Because as believers, we are part of a greater kingdom, a more noble kingdom, an eternal kingdom. And I want to take you back, and I want to show it to you, and we're going to walk through this very quickly in a few minutes that we have left. Turn back to Daniel chapter number two. I know the men's Bible study has been in there for what seems like an eternity, yeah, if we were Catholic, we'd say it's purgatory, right? No, I'm just kidding. So, We are members of a kingdom that will never be destroyed. So Daniel chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And if you remember the dream, there's the head of gold, the chest and arms of silver, the, the middle and thighs of bronze, the legs of, um, of iron, and the feet of clay and iron. You remember that, that image that he had to dream of? And in that dream, a stone not made with hands struck the image and broke it. And I want you to see what happened in verse number 35, Daniel 2.35. Then the iron and the clay and the bronze and the silver and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of summer threshing floors. Now, what you don't know is that um, the the chaff, well, I'll just say this, the chaff is completely blown away. And all the um, threshing floors and the wind carried them away. And Notice what? So that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Do you realize what Daniel just told Nebuchadnezzar? He just said, Nebuchadnezzar, as great as your kingdom is, one day you will not be able to find a trace of your kingdom. Notice that Daniel gives him the interpretation. Now, now the, the Babylonians, they're mighty, and they're fearsome, and they're powerful, and they will be destroyed so thoroughly that you can't find a trace of them. And Daniel's interpretation is found in verse number 44. Look at verse number 44. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven... Will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all of these kingdoms and shall bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after that. The dream is certain, and his interpretation is sure. When did or has or will this kingdom be set up? The answer is that kingdom is here right now. It was set up at the crucifixion and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That kingdom is here now. It's right here. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm so glad I'm part of that kingdom. But let's 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 get a little bit real here. It doesn't feel like our kingdom is winning, does it? It feels like a, every turn we're losing. Am I the only one that feels that way? But listen, you have to understand how Jesus characterizes the kingdom that we're in in its current state. This is so important. In Matthew chapter 13, he says this, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in a field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. So the kingdom starts small and grows unnoticeably and he gets even more specific it's even more unnoticeable he told them another parable the kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flowers until it was all leaven the leaven she stuck in there and it worked and it worked quietly and it was almost unnoticeable the way it was working but the kingdom's working it doesn't feel like it you can't see it but it's working, and the kingdom that we're part of, let, let's be real, the kingdom we're part of almost seems ineffective, overwhelmed, and irrelevant. The average church in the United States of America has a little less than 80 people in it. That's, that's, actually, that would be medium, not average. E- medium is, that means half of all the churches are under 80, When you add add them all together, the average attendance is somewhere around 95, all the megachurches and everything else. Now, let me ask you a question. Does anybody pay any attention, anybody in the world pay any attention to the little church on the corner? No? I bet you hundreds of people driven by, even this morning while we're here, and they have not paid one lick of attention to our church because we're irrelevant in their minds. Right? But it's like a mustard seed and leaven. It grows almost unnoticeably. And I want you to see what happens in the end. Turn to Revelation nineteen. Because our kingdom is growing and growing and growing. Did you know that there are more there there were more people who worshiped in a church in communist China this morning? than there were in all of Western Europe that worshiped in church this morning. There's over 100 million Christians in communist China. China and the the Southeast and the South, like Africa and, and South America, are the places where Christianity is growing like you cannot imagine we're so America-centric, we, a lot of times we don't realize that. But I want you to show, to, want to show you what happens. We seem irrelevant until one day, Revelation 19, verse number 11, our king shall come. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And the one, notice the explanation point, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and his name, he has a name written like no one knows but himself." He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following on him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written. And what is it? King of kings and Lord of lords. And it is that time that the kingdom, which we really can't see much, all of a sudden becomes visible to the whole world. And what is the result of that change in rulership? Look at now at Revelation 21, verse number one. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for a husband. By the way, that's us. The bride in Revelation and in the New Testament is the church. And we're coming down. And what does he say? I heard a voice from the la- uh, from the throne saying, "Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God, and He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Amen. And death will be no more. Amen. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. Amen. Why? Because the former things have passed away without a trace, just like God said would happen all the way back in Daniel. Without a trace, the former things have passed away. The corruption, the lies, the violence, the cheating, the hatred, the envy, the strife. It's all gone. There's not even a remnant of it anymore. Look at Revelation 22, verse number one. Then an angel showed me the river of the water of life. The Holy Spirit, basically, is what that's talking about there. Bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the lamb will be there. Praise the Lord. And what will his servants be doing? We will worship him. And we, I can't, we will see his face. Amen. And his name will be on their foreheads and the night will be no more. They will have no need to light a lamp or sun for the Lord will be their light. And they will, what? You and me. Those nations are gone. We're not irrelevant. It's not irrelevant at all. It's what we have to look forward to. Let me ask you a question. Where are you putting your hope? Why are you getting so riled up? If you are, by the way. most, Most people actually I've talked to are not getting riled up about all this stuff. It's going to happen. Is it right? No. Does it frustrate? Yes. But we have a nation, or I'm sorry, a kingdom to look forward to that will last forever and ever. In the meantime, what do we do? Number one, we keep ourselves from sin. Let me ask you a question. Is there sin in your life right now that you need to take care of? Number two, put her hope in that kingdom. Because I love the words of the hymn. I was reminded of this as I was writing this. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. And when he shall come in trumpet sound, and I cannot wait... Oh, may I then in him be found. Dressed in his righteousness alone, amen. We're so sinful, I am long for that righteousness. Faultless to stand before the throne. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Republican, Democrat, social justice, equity, 401Ks, 403Bs, IRAs, guns, houses. It's all sinking sand on Christ, the solid rock. Lord, I thank you. Lord, this was such a sobering message. To think about the state of our world, it's depressing. It's discouraging in a way until we have the long view in mind, until we see that the victory has already been won by the Lord Jesus Christ, we are part of a kingdom that will never, ever be overtaken. May we put our hope firmly on Jesus Christ and nothing else. In his name we pray, amen. We are going to sing that hymn together.